0: Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and sightseeing ghost, Alisa Quitney. And I'm
1: story expert and new bug, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of
0: Mist, Chapter 4, Issue 25 from the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mist, Chapter 4 was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Matt Wagner, inked by Malcolm Jones III, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre. Cover by Dave McKean.
1: Do you want to be a ghost in an attic all your life? Time to wake up. In Season of Mist Chapter 4, it's December 1990, and a young boy named Charles Rowland wakes up in an attic room as another young boy named Payne tends to him. We go back in time one week to see that Charles is staying on at his school, St. Hilarion's, over the holidays. It's just him, the headmaster, and the school nurse, Miss Gribble. Charles is staying at school because his father is an architect in Kuwait who's been taken hostage and couldn't send for Charles. As Charles sleeps alone in the dormitory, he feels the presence of the other children, now long dead, who went there in the past. In the present moment, Charles, who is clearly very ill, talks to Payne and says he's not afraid of dying. Payne says he should be. Back to last Tuesday. Charles wakes up, but no one's around. He gets some cookies from his locker and eats them, then goes to the headmaster's office to discover the headmaster's mother is visiting. From hell. She tells some very disturbing stories about Theodore's father, and Charles books it out of there. He goes to the sanatorium and finds Miss Gribble there, holding her two dead babies. Charles runs back to the dormitory and falls asleep, eventually. In the present moment, Payne tells the story of his death at the hands of other boys. Payne's bones are still in the attic room. Wednesday Charles wakes up to find Barrow, Cheeseman, and Skinner, the boys who killed Payne, now threatening him. But the headmaster from 1916 steps in and sends them to the main hall for an assembly. Everyone is dead, except for Charles. It's a little awkward. Later that night, the evil dead boys come to get Charles and torture him. Charles passes out and the boys leave, disappointed. That was hardly any fun at all. Pain finds Charles and takes him up to the attic where Charles lingers for a few days, then wakes up and the timelines catch up. Then Charles dies. Death tries to take him away, but Charles won't go without Pain. Death says she can't take Pain; She already took him, but Charles won't budge. She says, fine, she'll come back for him later. Things are kind of nuts now and she just doesn't have the time. Charles leads Payne out of the school, past a few horrifying scenes of evil dead antics, and they leave, figuring they've learned everything they're going to learn there. They want to head down the road and see what life has for them. To be continued. All right, Elisa, here we are, Season of mist, Chapter 4, in which the dead return and Charles Rowland continues his education. What'd you think?
0: Oh gosh! Well, you know, this may be one of my all-time favorite Sandman stories. If favorite means you know, it yanked my heart out of my body and poured you know bitter tears over it, and then put it back <laughs> fuller and richer than it had been before. Favorite can absolutely mean that. <laughs> I, you know, it's um, it is definitely a horror story in, in part, but it's, it's hard for me that it hits much closer to home. I've never been to a British boarding school, but <laughs> I was sent to summer camp for, I think, five summers uh, of childhood. Mm-hmm. And I was profoundly unpopular. And so I, I definitely can relate to so many things mm-hmm. in in this. Um, I think that uh I remember Neil once saying after Harry Potter came out that he could never have written it because he, you know, had been to a British boarding school and given the choice, he would have absolutely chosen to remain in the cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> i I can so relate to that, you know, um, mm-hmm. Harry Potter and, uh, well, Harry Potter and this story, they have a context in England and it's this sort of, um tradition of boarding school stories. And when mm-hmm. I was nine, I was visiting Israel with my mom, and we went into a secondhand bookstore. And there were a lot of British books. And I found mm-hmm. uh, Enid Blyton's Mallory Towers. So I bought a whole bunch of them. I was desperate for books, mm-hmm. the way kids were desperate for books back when, yes. you know, you The TV was all in Hebrew. Back when smartphones (laughs) were books. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I, you know, and it was all about this boarding school where, you know, Mm -hmm. selfish people learn to be generous and the clever and the athletic learn to be more empathic and Mm -hmm. nervous people learn to be bold and take chances. And I, you know, I loved that whole fantasy. Except, you know, mm-hmm. I knew that the reality of any time I was in a place where the children were not as closely supervised, it turned into Lord of the Flies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that there is, like so many
1: things in storytelling, there is the the kind of storytelling ideal of what that experience would be like for people who hadn't been through it. And then there is the actual reality of an experience, which is never as exciting as the fantasy, you know, version, Um, which is which is really fun. I have to say, I think this is probably the grimmest and most disturbing issue. Since 24 hours, the collectors, I think it's I think it's up there for me with those two. Yeah. Um it's it's good, like it's a really good story. It's just grim and I have this thing with dead kids. It's very funny because like my boyfriend I'm always like okay, I just don't like stories with dead kids and he of course suggested that we watch Stephen King's It. And I was like <laughs> I'm not so like it's it. every movie he recommends has a dead kid in it, whether he realizes it or not. He's just not as sensitive to it or whatever. But it was so funny because he was like, yeah, there's like kids who get hurt in it, but there's no dead kids. And I was like, it is nothing but it is dead kids central spoilers for people who haven't seen Stephen King's it anyway long story short. um, It's just like something that has always bothered me. I have a problem with kids in danger. I have a problem with kids who are unprotected. Um, And it's just a me thing. Like it's just one of my personal things that like gets me. Um, But this story is completely solid. It's really well told. It's very interesting. It's totally engaging. It just is like difficult for me to engage with. But I found that actually with a lot of Sandman have had these little challenges along the way. And at the same time, I've really enjoyed kind of getting past them and into this story. And what's funny is that when I read this, I was like, oh, okay, so this is, we're in this short story space, right? You know, we're like looking at this world from a different angle. And this is the thing, like with Sandman, we get these multifaceted spaces, right? We're in the same world. We're watching the same events, you know, as this stuff is unfolding. But we'll see it from all these different perspectives, which can be really, really fun, you know? And so here we are seeing it from this perspective. And I was like, oh, that was really neat. How interesting say, now these two dead boys are going to wander around and they're just going to be out there in the world. And then at the bottom, it says to be continued. And I'm like, oh, wait, is there more of, you know, Charles Roland and, and dead boy pain, you know? Um, So I thought that that was uh, really interesting. And, um, and I'm very intrigued in seeing where the rest of this uh, this, see, I think of it as seasons, this volume um, goes, uh, which I think is going to be really, really interesting. It's always a surprise, I gotta say. Sandman never goes where I think it's going to go. It's always interesting. Um all right, so let's talk a little bit about this cover art. Once again, you know, we have Dave McKean. We get this sort of Brady Bunch grid, um, the same picture of a young, smiling boy who looks blonde to me. So it would seem to me that it's Payne and not Charles, but I'm not really sure. Um, but in the grid, what I find so interesting here is the image is seen through looks like like varying flickers of flame. We only see it through the shape of the flame. And there are these shifting colors, the purple, red, blue, green. We go from these hot colors, these warm colors, to the cool colors and then back up again. Um, and the picture of the boy is the same, but the colors and the shape of the flame shift. So it feels like time is moving and yet also stuck, which is sort of the sense of the dead, right? You know, your pain was dead. I don't know how long ago, but he's still a little boy. You know, um, and the background has this dark, you know, very 90s grungy blue texture, which I thought was really cool. Um, so this is a really interesting, interesting cover. What did you take from it?
0: Yeah, no, I well, I wasn't sure if the boy was blonde or if the film was like an old wheel of film mm-hmm. that gets partially overexposed or burnt oh, yeah. in a fire, Um and I just I felt there was a little bit of a sense that there's this child frozen in a moment that's been extended the way when you look mm-hmm. at the cells of a reel of film, and you know with the the flicker of color I kind of imagined it as a life emerging from this this bruise purpley blue shadow yeah mm-hmm. but um, now I I I thought this was a moving cover and I I like that like Sandman Dave goes in in unexpected ways. He does. And he goes so
1: deep. There's always there's always like this deeper meaning if you actually sit and think about it. And I really enjoy that. We also have a new artist working on the uh, on the thing we brought
0: in uh, Matt Wagner. Yeah. So Matt Wagner is actually known as a comic book writer as well as an artist. Um, mm-hmm. I believe he won the Eisner, which is comics top award for his writing on Grendel. And he's mm-hmm. been nominated uh, for the Eisner for both his writing and his art. He went on to write a Vertigo uh, comic book, Sandman Mystery Theater, that was based on the Golden Age Sandman. And yeah, so he's he's obviously multi-talented. I felt that his style, which has this graphic at times a little cartoony slightly abstract quality to it Mm -hmm. keeps the balance of this story which can skew pretty dark on the side of humor and and poignancy rather than outright Mm -hmm. horror and yet you know scott mcleod who's written the books making comics and understanding comics he's got Mm -hmm. this whole uh bit that he talks about where when you abstract a face it becomes more universal And when you have a a, a hyper-realistic face and it's more specific, then you see an individual. And so there is Mm -hmm. something about the... I'm calling it cartooniness for want of a better word, but there is something about that slight abstract uh, graphic quality that I get from this that that feels like it makes this story a little hit home in a different way. I know that I am neither you know, uh, Charles Rowland or Edwin Payne. But I feel myself in both of them very strongly because they are stylized.
1: Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because, again, like as I've said before, I'm I'm learning so much about comics because there's so much I knew nothing, right? Um, But Scott McCloud, I actually, I did um, undergraduate work in television. um, And one of the books they had us read was Scott McCloud, because when you're talking about a visual medium, you know, even though it's comic books versus, you know, film or whatever, there are some universal parts of that visual language that you can go to. And I hadn't really thought about and again, I want, cartoonish is used as a word that is um, like derog- in, in a derogatory way because there's almost nothing those of us who speak the English language cannot make derogatory in one way or another. Um, but without saying that in a derogatory way that it is very drawn. You know, and it is and we do have these, you know, kind of like the, the facial features are not terribly distinct. And so it does make you feel like that could be you, even though it's a little boy in a boarding school in England. And the ability to do that within, you know, a story like this, I think, is, is a really interesting um, use of that skill set you know, like to make that happen. I think that's really cool. Um, so, okay, I'm just going to come out. This is so grim. This story is so grim, but so interesting. And it had me thinking so many thoughts. Um, cause like we have hell is closed, right? Heaven, we can presume is still business as usual right? Um, Why are babies coming back from hell? Because they weren't baptized? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Like, um, it's not the writing. Again, it's the belief system. Like, I've I've heard these stories of like, babies must be baptized, or if they die, they're going to go to hell. And here we have this baby who died in utero with a mother who had German measles and was 16 years old, and that baby comes back from hell. Like, that is... Crazy pants. All of that just sounds insane to me. Payne was a child murdered by people trying to raise demons. How was he in hell? What what could he possibly have done in those 13 years of life that he had that sent him to hell? Um, so I find this whole thing like it's it's so powerful and interesting, but I'm like, does everybody? Go to hell?
0: Like, what is the what is the what is? I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's funny. In my notes, I I wanted to mention Mm -hmm. that in Judaism, Gehenna is, I think, a place where the soul gets cleansed more. There is, Mm -hmm. I again, this is not my area of expertise. I do believe that in Mm -hmm. Judaism, there's this idea that the soul is composed of different parts. There's like the animal Mm -hmm. soul. There's the individual personality, and then there is this like kernel of of immortality that's that's mm-hmm. in there and that you know the the stuff that's particular to you gets stripped away and you've got this pure essential soul that remains mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i thought you know what let me just take all this away and just talk about the cosmology or the whatever the 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 philosophy of the sandman i think there was a book published yes. like the physics of the buffyverse maybe you know right, someone right. needs to do a book like the cosmology and and uh you, oh, you know, of yes. um, the, mm-hmm. the role of, of hell in, in Sandman comics. Mm-hmm. I think there is an argument to be made that hell must have very different areas and corridors. And not all of it is about punishment, that some of it is about mm-hmm. where you are stuck. And I get the yeah. feeling, you know, that that Pain went to hell because he was mm-hmm. mentally stuck. He'd been tortured. And he was still mm-hmm. caught in, you know, in that awful moment. He he yeah. couldn't get out of it. And then it takes him having a friend who says, we don't have to be stuck here. I don't think hell is mm-hmm. a place. And that his belief mm-hmm. that hell is not a place is part of what gets them out of the attic. And, you know, yeah. skipping to the end here, but, you know, Payne says... Mm-hmm. Uh, what, my bones are here, and you know, and and Roland says, and mine, and my hair, and a bit of skin too. But I don't see why that should stop me. And then it's like, oh, okay. So it's uh-huh. perhaps this idea that what we believe is what uh, limits us or confines us.
1: Interesting. If... But
0: then I have this thought about the the never born. I I mm-hmm. wonder if then are the never born constrained by the belief systems of the parent.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, maybe, I don't know. It's it's really interesting. And then we have death, right? So death comes in, she comes for Charles, right? But I mean, okay, but, uh, yeah, but okay. But pain came back though, because hell was closed. So he yes. was, I don't know, the whole thing I find so, so incredibly confusing. But what
0: I'm saying is, so I, my 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 hypothesis is that pain was in hell. And we don't know where he was in hell or how, you know, right. obviously hell was not fun for him. But that his <laughs> hell was being stuck in, in, in a, a place, somehow mm-hmm. being stuck in his conception of what was going to happen to him that he was trapped Mm -hmm. in his 13 year old sense of I got murdered so I'm going to go to hell and that his well yeah
1: when you're 13 years old you could still believe yes that you know that because let's say perhaps you did the things that 13 year old boys are well known for doing yeah that you may think you belong in hell and we did have that bit of world building with Lucifer where he's like they come here and they tell us what they want and we do it, but it's got nothing to do with me. So maybe it's just, you know, people who believe, even if it's erroneous. And as a kid, you don't know. You don't know if what you've done is bad enough to go to hell. There are a lot of things that people say will send you to hell that if, as you grow up, you're like, well, that's ridiculous. But when you're a kid, you know.
0: And and I just want to say that there is no place in hell that I can imagine that would be worse than this boarding school or then, you know, some of my you know, I yeah. just being a kid, being so powerless. My mom, I remember, always said, everyone wants to go and be a child again. She said, I hated it. I hated it. You mm-hmm. have no agency. You're powerless to uh you know, to mm-hmm. determine your own fate. And so that's you know, I, I Yeah. So I don't know. This this seems like a pretty hellish the escape from hell is it's, hellish. it's yeah. Hellish.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's really, um, it's just it's so interesting. But death comes for Charles and says, no, I already came for pain. So does that mean that death is escorting children to hell? Like, or what she's, She's, it doesn't matter where they're going. She's just moving them along on the
0: conveyor belt. So I I think that death is both. So there's a term psychopomp, uh, if I'm using Mm -hmm. this right. This has been a long time since I looked this up. But a psychopomp Uh, is a character who helps uh, escort you through the transition, like Sharon mm -hmm. the Ferryman. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so I think in this sense, Death is also a psychopomp in that she is helping you bridge that transition Mm -hmm. between your your life and where you go next. I Mm -hmm. think that there is a suggestion here that where you end up Just like the sorting hat in Harry Potter, that if you're thinking like, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, that you don't end up in Slytherin. And if you're thinking, I guess, you know, God, I hate this, but I guess I deserve to be in Slytherin. Again, I feel like I'm Slytherin bashing. I'm sorry. There are plenty of good, good people who've gone to Slytherin, I'm sure. Um, Yes. Mm -hmm. So, but I think that there is that element of we become... Mm. The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Yeah. I just want to say a side note. I had this as a note in the script to say later, but um, so here we've got Death visually. She is so 80s. She's got the sweatband. She looks like Olivia Newton John in that physical video. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because obviously she's jogging all over the place. She's wearing, I think, leg warmers and what are Mm -hmm. clearly Reebok sneakers, if anyone remembers those. (laughs) But in the script, uh, Neil describes her as, you know, just not making an effort. She is cool because she doesn't try to be cool. He says, you know, she's running around. But if I were to go jogging, I would just wear a black T-shirt and jeans. Uh, (laughs) So maybe that's what she's wearing. And Matt (laughs) Wagner went another way. I suspect in the Netflix Mm -hmm. series, she is not going to be dressed like that. But who? what, Like Olivia Newton-John? Yes. I don't know. (laughs) You know, even
1: when she's incredibly busy she still has style and i got to say i respect it i definitely respect it um but yeah i mean i think that it's it's really funny that you know we have death showing up right and she's like all right kid look you don't want to go fine you stay here i got stuff to do but i'm like why is why is she busier because the dead came back but she's not reprocessing the dead who have returned because she's not at all interested in pain. She's like, I already worked, you know, he's already checked off on my list, not my problem, right? Not oh. my circus, not my monkeys. So why is death so harried now? Oh, this Except is, for all the people that the dead are killing. That's, that's what I'm
0: thinking. Because I had thought yeah. initially that she had to round up the escapee dead. Um, had to reprocess them. Yes, right? but if she's not doing that, or maybe the priority is people who are dying for the first time, Uh, Mm -hmm. But this this really, you know, it does seem an inefficient, you know, death needs some bureaucratic help. Um, She needs a personal assistant at the very least. I mean, my God. Now, that would be a. An interesting story death's personal
1: assistant death <laughs> death's personal assistant would actually be really really interesting we should definitely talk about that later um but anyway so yeah so this uh story you know we've got kind of this um oh you know there's oh, so oh, much oh, oh, i'm sorry i'm
0: sorry i just had this thought
1: it's a oh, choice. That's okay it's
0: a choice um because like dream has used his power to create the dreaming And to invite denizens in to have people who've died while asleep and dreaming to have the choice to remain. He has, you know, given uh, Cain this lease. He's, you know, he's made a decision to people Mm -hmm. his realm. I guess Mm -hmm. death did not make that decision because we never hear about her having used part of her power to create, you know, helpers the way Dream Mm -hmm. has or to invite people into the realm of death um interesting so for all she that just does it all on her own she d- but that must be a choice I'm sorry like I I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt and it was suddenly
1: like brain exploding no, but that's a really interesting idea I'm glad that you did interrupt I think that
0: that's a really interesting idea um that she clearly she could yeah yeah and so dream seems all you know brooding solitary pants but he's chosen he's not so introvert as he makes himself out to be he has absolutely
1: created community in the Dreaming. Now, again, the Dreaming is a realm, right? And death is a transition. Oh, so but doesn't she have a realm? I mean, does she have a realm? I mean, there's heaven and there's hell. What is she? She is the fairy man. She is the transition. She is the person who takes you from one place to another. Does she have a place, a realm? Uh, you know, is there a place? Where would she put all of her little denizens if she has no realm.
0: Okay, I'm I, I'm very excited to to have these questions be out there, but I want to make sure we we talk more about the issue because now we're in deep yes! in the cosmology of Santa. We're
1: getting deep into the cosmology. I think that that's interesting. We'll go ahead and set that aside for the moment. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the visual storytelling, what, the things that we're able to do in comics. We had a little bit of a play with some dramatic irony here, and I thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, this is one of those parts that I really love in this. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. I go back and forth between writing prose and writing comics in comics, uh, in, in, in books, especially in romantic books and and YA, there's been this trend towards very deep POV and in Mm -hmm. comics, you know, because it's, it's visual, there are some things that are possible that aren't so easily possible in prose. Um, Mm -hmm. So the scene I'm thinking about is I'm going to just read out the description of page six, panel four. This is from the script. Okay, like the last shot, only pull back further so the door is smaller and staring at where Roland just went are figures in the mist. Little more than outlines. Four or five boys with blank faces staring from the fog at the door. The living boy went through staring expressionlessly at the door or at us, depending on how you want to frame it. Basically, this is the first moment in the ghost story we can be certain there's something wrong. And we know before Roland does, basically this page should just be black and white, the white of the mists, the black of the things coming out of it. And and then we have the captions, you know, of the letter mm-hmm. that Roland's writing, please daddy, take me home. And I just, I just think there's something so wonderfully chilling. It is such a ghost story moment. And it's, yeah. you know, it's very visual. Mm-hmm.
1: It is. I mean, and it's such a, um, and I remember that moment, you know, the way it was expressed in, in the visuals. And it really is just this breath of like, oh, man. You know, there's something and of course, we've known like the dead are coming back. The dead are coming back is something that we have been hearing a refrain we've been hearing for the last couple of issues. And here is where we just first begin to see that. So this being presented in this classic ghost story fashion, um, I think, is pretty much perfect. It's just a perfect setting for this.
0: It is. It. it you know, we see the implications, but it's also, I think, a good moment to to call out for, for readers who are new to reading comics because you know in the audio Sandman book everything will get called out more specifically. Here you have to attend to the artwork. If you're just reading the text, you won't see those ghosts. And if you're not, if your eye is skimming over the picture, we, you know, Mm -hmm. we learn to dismiss pictures. So you could just say, okay, I'm going to keep my eye on Charles and I'm going to, you know, just take in the jet and I'll flip through really quickly. You've got to slow down and pay attention. And it's, it's a different kind of close reading you know we may know how to close read poetry or, or texts this requires close reading so you don't miss it if it were a tv show or a movie i'm sure in the netflix series it's going to be a special effect right we're going to see the mist mm-hmm. and at first it'll just be mist and then it will cohere into these boys shapes I'm, I'm imagining something like that whereas here it's a little more abstract and you've got to do a little more visual work a little more you know, reader work. You do. You have to lean in
1: Um, with comics. This is the thing that I've learned because I am very much a read the text on the page and then the pictures are just there to support, you know, the text that like I don't need it, you know. Um, And it's one of those things while doing, you know, these reads that I'm like, okay, we've got to pay attention to all of the visuals and what do they mean and how do they work together and what is happening in the panel and what is happening in the gutter and how do all these things and what does this visual language mean? Um, and it is one of those things where you really do, it's it's like, um, you know, mindfulness, right, is this big thing right now is that we have to be mindful, we have to be in the moment, we have to actually take the effort involved, it is effort to live in the moment because we live in a world that is so full of distractions and paying attention is a skill that we, I think, are not as attuned to, right, we've lost a little bit of that. And part of that is because there's so many things that are vying for our attention, that to actively give our attention to the little details and to really absorb something is not kind of a natural inclination at this time, you know, in the world, right, in the way that people are existing in the world. And, um, and so to, uh, there is something about reading comics that does Make me feel meditative. It makes you. I think it might be good for you. I think reading comics and really paying attention to every little thing. If you can't get into meditation, that might be, you know, an entryway for you. Oh my god! I love you that. Really do. You really do have to stop you know, and stop rushing through everything. You know, we read everything so fast now um, that to actually take the time and see all the visuals. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love that this experience has been teaching me to do. Because I am, I am a racer. I'm a rusher. I'm a Let's get to the next thing. What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And in comics, you have to be what's here you know, and really sit in it for a moment. And I think that it does have that that mindfulness effect. I think you get benefits from that.
0: Oh, my God, I love that. Um, And I find comics so much easier than meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So maybe it's an entry
1: point, right? If you can't meditate, then just go read a comic. (laughs) But read it. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing is that people, when you use the word, when I use the word read and I'm talking, I'm talking about engaging, you know, like thoughtfully with any story in any format. So when you're listening to an audiobook, you are reading the audiobook. When you're watching a movie, you're reading the movie. If you are thinking about what it all means and how it all works together and taking in the visuals and how do the visuals work and what does that give me, you know? Um so whenever you're engaging thoughtfully with anything, you are reading it. And so so when you know we talk about reading a comic book, I'm talking about capital R reading a comic book. That's a whole different experience. You're
0: eating a lobster,
1: you know. You have yes. to dig
0: into each little like whatever those feelery things yes. are with your special you have to tool. Mean it, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: All right. So let's see what else do we have here. Oh, there's some discussion to be had about children and adult spaces and the ways we're teaching. You and I both had um, had a bunch of notes about about the ways in which we are looking at these kids, um, is looking at the kids in adult spaces and that we're using the last names rather than the first names, which I think does something. Um, and also like you were talking about uh, helicopter and snowplow, the very, the very big, um, appliance, uh, you know, kind of parenting that we've got going on now and <laughs> what it used to be like way back in the day
0: when you and I were kids. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about what's, changed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people talk about helicopter parents and snowplow parents who try and remove every obstacle. Mm -hmm. Back in, you know, I think the late 60s, early 70s, there was this assumption that children by and large had to shape themselves more to adult spaces. And Mm -hmm. there was more of this Uh, you would be expected to come along sometimes with your parents to adult things, and there would be nothing to freaking entertain you. If you were, you know, six, seven, eight years old, nobody was bringing you a bag of toys or a portable, there might not be a TV. You were expected, (laughs) you know, one crayon, a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you would have to make it last. The other thing, and I saw a discussion about this on Twitter that I thought was really interesting, the idea that before uh you know i guess there were always kids books but i don't remember this Mm -hmm. clear middle grade it's there were you know early reading books chapter books and then whatever the hell you could get your hands on and right (laughs) and so i mean i was god i was reading forever amber and harold Mm -hmm. robbins porny uh uh, hollywood (laughs) books jackie collins as well as stephen king yeah. Shakespeare and classical mm-hmm. you would just you would find a book I remember at one point reading the rise and fall of the Roman Empire because again <laughs> I was on a trip in Israel it was the only book I could find in English and I was 9. Yeah? Uh-huh. <laughs> and they're talking about, you know, degrading currency and I'm thinking god this is boring but I can't understand the TV. Anyway, the, the exactly. but nothing was mostly kids were allowed to read whatever mm-hmm. it is they wanted to read there wasn't this I right. think same level of concern that they were going to um, be corrupted by by uncomfortable things in books mm-hmm. and yeah. um and so I, I think we get to see this more the sense of free range childhood here in good ways and in bad mm-hmm. ways and i I love how Roland is, you know, having to entertain himself. And he's entertaining himself with the Scarlet Pimpernel. And, <laughs> you know, this whole idea... The Scarlet Pimpernel is a classic superhero story, really. He's yeah. got a secret yeah. identity. He's, you know, mm-hmm. hiding his true heroic self under a foppish exterior. So I, I just love that. And I, um, I think Neil had actually written about how he would pretend to have a headache and sneak away into the library at school mm-hmm. to escape into books. And I, I think we, you know, this generation of kids, uh, maybe we we didn't get some of the benefits, but we also ended mm-hmm. up just stumbling onto weirder stuff, stuff that was not intended for us. And there's there's a certain thrill that goes along with reading stuff that you absolutely know was not intended for you. Right. It was not age
1: appropriate, I yes. believe is what they would call it today. Um, yeah, I, I, it's really interesting because um, I think that having access to that kind of stuff, while we protect our kids so much from that stuff now because we feel so damaged by our own childhoods, right? Nobody cared where we were. We wandered around for whatever. Um, And so then the next generation turns around and protects their kids, you know, like maybe a bit too much and that there's somewhere in there. Usually it's the balance in the middle that is the place to go, you know. Um, But one of the things that I caught was that we're using last names for all of these children, right? Um, And when I was writing the summary, I was like, okay, do I call him Charles or do I call him Roland. And I went through and I did a find and replace and I put Roland in there. And I was like, no, Roland is an adult. Right. This is a child. So I went back and changed it all back to Charles. And I found that I, I identified and connected with this character so differently based on what he was called and the way that he was addressed. And pain is just we just get his last name, which, of course, his whole identity is pain. Right. I mean, that is everything he is. He is just a a child rendition of the concept of pain. That is who this kid is, you know. Um. And I I find it so interesting how that that one little switch in the way in which we think about this kid changes the way we see him, you know,
0: although, you know, for me, I I actually was in Mallorca when I was three and I knew a kid Mm -hmm. named Roland. This is a very strange Uh story. Uh, So I there was a tire swing and I was the youngest kid. I never got to Mm -hmm. be on the tire swing. And then suddenly everyone left the tire swing and I got to be on the tire swing. And I realized everyone else was running around and I, I got up and I said, what's going on? And someone said, Roland split his head open against the wall and he kept on running to the nurse. I realized this can't have happened quite this way, but I was three. Anyway, so I knew Roland right. as a first name. and Oh, sure. Right. Roland was one of my two imaginary friends.
1: Well, Roland as a first name is different, right? Yes. But
0: when when we know it's his
1: last name and yet we're hearing him addressed by his last name, there is something about children being addressed by their last names which creates a distance
0: between us and them, but which makes us see them as more adult than maybe they are. I, I didn't take it that way myself, but I thought that it gave you, you know, nowadays for me, I mean, but I can see why that, would, that could read that mm-hmm. way. For me, it's like, Now that everyone instantly calls everyone by their first name, Mm -hmm. the intimacy of the first name is lost. But, you know, in romances, in historical Mm -hmm. romances, there's always this moment where it's like, don't call me, you know, Lord Huntley anymore. Call me... (laughs) Brad or whatever it is. And and there's that moment when the boys exchange first names and you're like, oh, intimacy. It's so it
1: is. It's incredibly intimate, you know. Um, but I just I find it interesting. And then we have these three murdery boys, Barrow, Cheeseman, and Skinner, which sounds like the worst <laughs> law firm ever. Um And we have these representatives from Barrow, Cheeseman, and Skinner who are just like murdering people and animals and all of this stuff and killing this kid. And the kid is too. pain is like, yeah, uh, my bones are here. They didn't even try really hard to like make it look like it
0: wasn't a murder. Yeah. Has your satanic ritual gone wrong?
1: (laughs) Come on, Cheeseman, Barrow,
0: and Skinner. We're experts in solving this for you. (laughs)
1: It's seriously, I mean, it's just, it's, I I love it. And if I ever write a story that has a law firm, I'm calling it Cheeseman, Barrow and Skinner. That's, that's it um but anyway so uh so yeah i i i thought all of this stuff was just so crazy so weird these children who are murdering these children who come back and then they're like oh yeah you're back here because you either had nowhere else to go or you died here and then we have the stories of the children who
0: died there and it's it's I mean, it is part of what makes this writing so effective for me Mm -hmm. that even Barrow, Cheeseman, and Skinner, (laughs) the law firm Barrow, Cheeseman, and Skinner, even they give you a moment where you have to feel... Um, if not empathy, at least compassion, because they mm-hmm. they died in World War One, and I think yeah. in this country we also seem to forget World War One. World War One. I, mm-hmm. I always felt sad for World War One. World War One was like we're important too, and, never, and all the attention yeah. growing up was on World War Two,
1: and mm-hmm. only now
0: I think, especially as we're more aware of the aftermath of World War One and the influenza epidemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a terrible war for young men and it really destroyed a generation. And so you look at these, you know, Mm -hmm. little shits. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Um, Sure. But, but we. It's your podcast. You can say whatever the hell you want. (laughs) But we, we have a moment of
1: compassion even for them. Mm hmm. Even for them, yeah, because that was a really, really terrible time. Um, But yeah, it's uh, seeing them also as, you know, Cheeseman, Barrow and Skinner and not John, you know, Elliot and Gavin or whatever, you know, like it just, it does something, it creates a separation. And so we have these children... Um, Where we would care about them if they were children, but because we're talking about them by their last names, because we're putting that distance there, because we're kind of seeing them as adults, it's just a little bit different. And that got me thinking, because I recently read this book. And it's one of these things, you know, somebody reads a book that has philosophy in it and they start talking about all this kind of stuff, thinking they know anything. I know nothing. I know very little about philosophy, but I'm going to talk about it as though I do. Um, so I just read this book called How to Be Perfect by Michael Scharr, who's the creator of The Good Place. Um, and it's basically a funny philosophy primer, just like the very basics, the low level philosophy, you know, concepts. Um, but one idea he talked about that stuck with me was this idea of moral dessert. And I'm about to butcher all of this philosophy stuff. So So if any of you want to correct me, and I know some of you do, it's endless at chipperish.com. Just go ahead and give me an email and tell me all the ways in which I'm wrong. Um, But basically, moral dessert is the idea that if you do something good, you deserve some kind of reward for it, which is basically like a goodness cookie, right? You know, you get it. You do something good and you get a cookie. Um, But that thinking has flaws to it, because if you're only being good for the cookie, then you're not really being good. um, You know, and and so anyway, like, as I'm reading this story about babies and murdered children going to hell, I'm thinking about the fact that I have like a really strong response to children being harmed and being unprotect- unprotected. But adults, like, fuck them, right? Like, this is how we feel about adults. Screw it, whatever. They probably deserve it. Because once you're past the age of 16, you've done something terrible enough to deserve whatever the hell horrible things happen to you. um, You know, and like, and when I think about that, I feel like how unreasonable that is, that we feel like once you've, you know, like you're innocent and lovely and wonderful and a child until you cross this Rubicon and then suddenly whatever happens to you, you deserve it. You're terrible. Go to hell for eternity. 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 These people are being tormented. Nada was 16 when she died and she's been in hell for 10,000 years like the it is so unbalanced and so wrong and all of it when you think about it just doesn't make any sense this idea that anybody no matter what they done would necessarily deserve Hell, like, there's no justice. That's just vengeance. And vengeance doesn't do anything, you know? Um, so anyway, I just, I started thinking about the the idea of moral dessert. And then we have this kind of flip of it. I don't know what the word for it is, but like, that you deserve whatever bad things happen to you because it's your own damn fault, because you did these things, because you were this or whatever, you know? And I find it so, like, it's just the idea that anybody, no matter what they've done, I mean, even if you think about the most, like, evil person in the world does their suffering for an entire eternity really make anything that they, it doesn't undo any of the terrible things that they did you know like so what what is it what is the value of the system
0: the system doesn't work this is the bad place <laughs> you know i think this kind of fits back into our whole cosmology mm-hmm. of sandman i i yeah. just keep thinking that you know In a way, eternity in this is a shorthand for me, Mm -hmm. and it's a shorthand Mm -hmm. for just being stuck, for being stuck. Mm -hmm. You know, you you keep thinking, you know, well, if this person was 16 and they were this person, surely by 36, they'd be that much more advanced and Mm -hmm. 56. But we all know people who ceased to grow. And yeah. I, I think, so t- to me, the, the because I can't really relate to what eternity is or, or 10,000 years, right. for me, it's yeah. a shorthand for people who've gotten stuck. So you're just getting stuck
1: somewhere. I like that. I mean, that, I understand. this This idea of people being condemned to an eternity in hell does not make any sense to me. And of course, I think... And there are people, again, endless at chippers.com. I think there are people who, like, who have read the actual, like, source material for the Bible, like the books, understanding it in the context of the language in which it was originally written, and the ways in which we have throughout the years bastardized it and translated it into things that maybe aren't what the original intent was. All of that, I'm sure, is out there. I know I've heard bits and pieces of it, but again... I don't know anything. I don't know enough about it to talk about it. All I know is that when I look at it through the context of these children, when I looked at it through the context of the adults that were in hell, I was like, yeah, well, brush all ammonia. Yeah, sure. You know, deserves it. Right. Whatever. But when I look at it through the context of these children, I'm like, wow, it is weird how my my response changes so much based on whether they're kids or adults.
0: But, you know, there's one Common thread I see with Brushal of Livonia, if I'm saying that right, yes. and uh, Cheeseman, Barrow, and Skinner. Um, <laughs> Call now for all your satanic rituals gone awry. <laughs> but they, what they have in common is this sense that mm-hmm. they get to hell, and nobody cares about them, and nobody cares, and you know, yeah, they, I mean, that I,
1: was a neat little turn.
0: Did I ever do a thing? Uh, clearly, you know, mm-hmm. they, just people feel really inadequate in hell.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's where a lot of us are stuck in just this constant eternity of inadequacy. All right, so I think that that gives us a wonderful segue into Lucien's library. That's actually not a segue. We're not talking about inadequacy in Lucien's library, but I just had to move us into it. So I tried to do it as smoothly <laughs> as possible. Um, all right, so Lucien's library, behind the scenes, possible spoilers. You have been warned. Alisa. what do you got for us?
0: So um, Neil said he set out to write a ghost story that was also mm-hmm. a love story. And that was also a real horror story. And I think he absolutely succeeded on all three he counts. Did so at the end of the story, Neil said that he kind of imagined that the boys go off and set up maybe their own occult detective agency. <laughs> and, uh, and this idea... Was actually uh, spun off into a Vertigo comic miniseries, The Dead Boys Detective Agency, written by Ed Brubaker, illustrated by Brian Talbot and Steve Leoloa. Um, Roland and Payne also show up in the TV show Doom Patrol, and I just discovered that there was a pilot commissioned for an HBO show back in 21, thousands of years ago, uh, about oh, the Dead goodness. Boys Detective Agency. I have to admit, though, although I love the idea of the boys as, you know, detectives mm-hmm. and, and uh, all of that, the story of them finding each other is a romance or bromance, mm. and Even though there's so much fun to be had in the story of their partnership, it just doesn't have the same emotional heft. And it's why for me, like, I loved Romancing the Stone, but I really Mm -hmm. didn't have any interest. What was the one that came after? Jewel of the Nile. Jewel of the Nile. I think I Mm -hmm. saw Jewel of the Nile once and Romancing the Stone is like an annual rewatch for me. A million times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the
1: love story, right? And the thing is, is that when we talk about love stories, we're not necessarily talking about romances. Those are different things, right? But the love story is just two people who love each other and who are connected. And here we have Payne and Roland, and I am like astounded, fascinated um, that there was an HBO show. Like if it came out, I'll find it. If not, if it's coming out, I will watch it when it comes out. I'm very excited for this idea, and I love these two boys, you know, uh, being bonded by this experience, and also the fact that Roland, who was kind of timid, right in life, he just kind of was like, okay, I guess this is what's going on? I guess nobody's going to feed me. So I'll just eat some cookies. Oh, okay. There's dead people just doing terrible things to each other all over the place. Okay. You know, Um, and then dies. And once he dies, he has no fucks to give, which I love so much about him is that once he's at that point, he's like, yeah, my dad, not that interested in being a parent. I'm not really going to worry about him. He clearly was not that worried about me, you know, and he just like, gets up, goes on the road, is like, so uh, we have to stay here because our bones are here? I don't think so. He stops following their rules. The world has let him down. And he is not about to sit there and just do whatever this world tells him he should do. He gets up and he leaves. And one of the things that I love is that moment at the end when Pain is following him and he takes off his cap and he throws it up in the air. And it lands on one of the spikes of the gate, which, by the way, for a boys' school, for a children's place, like, those are some pretty spiky gates you got there, people, you know? Britain, Britain's a spiky gate kind of place in a it's lot a of ways. It's a spiky gate kind of place. But it looked like a head on a pike when he tossed that cap up. And I was just like, that is fascinating imagery In so many different levels.
0: But it also tells us something about the cosmology. And this I am just Mm -hmm. saying right now off the cuff that, you know, there's this conceit that ghosts look the age they were when they died and that they mm-hmm. are kind of wedded to whatever they were wearing. If they were wearing a torn wedding gown, that's it. Torn wedding gown, <laughs> no new clothes for you. And if they were wearing a cap with their uniform, suck it up. You've got to There you go. And mm-hmm. and so I think that Roland has become a truly uh, leadership kind of ghost guy because he is yeah. saying, I don't have to stay where my bones are. These are conventions and guidelines, mm-hmm. not rules. Yeah. And go ahead and stop me then, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. He's going to go. And if he gets pulled back, fine. But he's not going to stay there because he thinks he needs to be there, which is what Payne has done. He's not going to self-edit. Yeah. No, it's-, it's... He's not going to self-edit. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. I love that part of the story. Um, all right, so what else do you have for us? Behind the scenes in
0: Lucian's library. Behind the scenes, so we talked a little bit about books, and mm-hmm. I just thought that when uh, in the script Neil mentions some of the books he would go and read when he was faking a mm-hmm. headache, and Father <laughs> Brown's stories, Man Eaters of the Kumaon, King Solomon's Mines were the ones that were mentioned. <laughs> so I thought I would I would uh, say that. I love it. Lonnie. what books do you remember reading when you shouldn't have been reading that book at all?
1: Oh, my goodness. I, you know, funny enough, was so into Stephen King when I was very young. I could not get enough of horror stories back then. Um, And so I remember reading all of those. I remember once uh, in the eighth grade, my teacher, and I swear to God, I don't know how this happened, had recommended looking for Mr. Goodbar to me, or had said something about it. And I didn't know what it was. I was in eighth grade. And so I went and got it from the library. And then I started reading it. I was like, oh, this is sexy. And then I went to him. And I was like, oh, hey, so you told me to read this book. But it seems like, did I get the wrong book? And he's like, I never told you to read that book. And I'm like, no, I think you did, because I wouldn't just make it up off off the top of my head. So there was stuff like that, um, that I, I read a lot. But mostly, I just, I loved the, you know, I loved the Bronte and I loved Austin and like all of that kind of stuff when I was a kid. I used to love reading that. Oh, fuck. Although although Jane Eyre is pretty freaking horrifying. You read that as an adult and you're like, oh
0: my God, this is nuts. No, absolutely. Well, I think I was reading a lot of my dad's science fiction and then Mm -hmm. I loved me some turgid, you know, uh, late 70s historical fiction, you know, Cleopatra Mm -hmm. clutching asps to her creamy, creamy (laughs) bosom for all she's worth. Anyway, um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the pacing of ghost stories. So Neil, at the beginning of the script, talks a bit about how is he going to fit in everything he needs to and yet take the time that he needs to in the beginning. And he said, you know, with ghost stories, you really need to establish the status quo before you can screw around with it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I was realizing that for me, whether it's disaster movies of the 70s or, or, oh, I, I don't know. It, it feels like pacing used to be slow enough to really establish characters and what mm-hmm. the status quo was. And now it's feeling like we must grab you by the, you know, Short and Harry's immediately. And so you... <laughs> But the problem is I don't have enough time to invest in anyone before everything Mm -hmm. becomes craptastic.
1: So I I
0: love the pacing of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's
1: nice. I mean, and the thing is that it's... I would not say in any way that this is paced slowly. Uh, you know, we start out because we start out with him dead. We do the time jump, right? Where we, we borrow from later on in the story and then we come back. So we see him dead first, you know, with this other boy with him. And then we go back to a week ago and we kind of walk through that story. So it's not like anybody's taken a lot of time to get to the exciting stuff in this episode. or in this. No,
0: it, And that's actually a really good point. I was thinking about mm-hmm. this and then I forgot it. But, you know, if, if you want to if you're you know if anyone listening to this is a writer and trying to learn mm-hmm. different kinds of structures this is that beginning in the middle or you know right before the crisis it's it's beginning mm-hmm. you know right before the the final crisis because this boy is dying but he's not yet dead mm-hmm. and then we go back to the beginning and flash back until we catch up with the moment he's mm-hmm. at and then where we're at is close to the climax of the story Yes. As we yes. move towards And actually,
1: that is something I I've no, I haven't found like an actual term for it yet. So I just call it the fractured tease, which is where we borrow something from later in the story and do it at the beginning. Typically I don't like them. Um, and the reason I don't like them is because often they are used very cheaply. Often it's like, you know, the the, the thing that comes to mind is this episode of Leverage from some years ago where we have Hardison who is uh, in a coffin and then we go 36 hours earlier. So we just borrow from an exciting point so that we can kind of like grab people at the beginning. But we're not really using it as something that is is thematically what this story is about. Um, and I always hated Fractured Teases. Then I started watching Breaking Bad where we used Fractured Teases. Jesus. I always say we as if I had anything to do with it. I don't know why I do that. I always do that. And I, it's nothing to do with me whatsoever. So when I say we, tell me to shut up in your head because I always do in my head. Anyway, so um, in uh, in Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan would take part of the story from the end, but it would be something that was related thematically to what the, it was a thematic moment rather than an exciting moment, you know. And I feel like that's what Neil does here. Like we take this moment, which is really about these two boys. You know, um, in this in this space between life and death where pain really does death's job. Right. Pain is there, you know, with Roland the whole time walking him through this experience. Then Roland dies and then they're together and he, you know, helps him through that transition. So pain kind of is death's assistant. I would say, unofficially, um, in this uh, in this um, issue, so we're this is a ghost story, absolutely. This is a horror story, absolutely. But mostly, mostly, it's a love story, and we start with the beginning of that love story, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think that thematically, a fractured tease in this circumstance is actually, I think, it's good, and I think that it works. Typically don't like them. I don't like them when they're cheaply employed because we just don't feel like we want to make our beginning as entertaining or exciting enough or whatever. Um, Whenever there's something that's like 36 hours earlier, I always get really irritated. But I think that here, because we're talking about a love story and we're starting with what is really important about this and then leading up to it, I think it really works.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Could the story also have worked if it just started with this boy in this deserted, uh, in the deserted school. Because I feel, I mean, that is such an, I, I think it could have possibly worked the other way as well. I think it could have worked both
1: ways. But because we start with the most important thing, which is this relationship, right? We're not borrowing from this moment. This is not this big, heart-pounding, exciting moment. This is a very deeply emotionally connected moment with these two boys, and one is caring for the other, one who is dead, one who is alive. We've got them on two sides of this divide, right? And this is what this story is about, right? The divide between life and death and the transition over. But it's very much about the love story in the middle of all of that horror. And I think that, yes, you absolutely could have told this story. It would have been good. But you, but the point would have maybe been missed that this is not a horror story. This is a love story because we're starting with that.
0: Yes. And I, I want to say this is one of the stories that I think works better as a comic than it does on the Audible for me because mm-hmm. of there's this moment when, you know, Roland is so he, – he's so cold and he's lying there in the attic and uh, and he holds uh, Payne's hand and he says, you know, you're so cold. And Payne says, well, you know, something like that's to be expected. It's hardly surprising. And then we mm-hmm. get our first full visual of his face and we see that his eyes are, you know, glazed over with the milk white of, of death. Yeah. That's when mm-hmm. that's the penny drop that he's dead. And I don't think yeah. it, it there's something about that reveal that I just find both chilling and cool. And I Mm -hmm. I think it, it worked better for me in this one instance with the visual.
1: I think that there are there are certain things that lend themselves more to one particular kind of storytelling medium than another. There are some things that happen in the Audible uh, version that I find uh, really kind of give me more perspective when I'm reading the comic as well. So I think that having them together mm-hmm. works. Yes. You know, I think that they both kind of reflect nicely on each other. But yeah, there are times where certain things do, you know, reflect better or do work better in one medium than the other. And that's just kind of the way that it is. Um, but but I do find that, I mean, it's such a horrifying moment where we see this kid's dead face. and yet it is this incredibly loving, Moment That this is the story that we're telling. It's like the the movie Shaun of the Dead is actually a romantic comedy. Like if you think about what the story is actually about, it's a romantic comedy. It just happens to have zombies in it, you know. And this is a love story that is also a ghost story. It has ghosts in it, but it is a love story. And especially when we're doing all of these... Um, You know, all of this has been about the dead are coming back and hell has closed and there are demons everywhere and there's all of this stuff going on Um, that we remain connected to the love part of the story, I think, is so powerful um, and such an important, like, conscious choice to be made that what is it that we're going to focus on? And that's one of the things that I love about fusing genres like that is that you when you mix love and death, you know, and horror and all of that and you mix it together, everything, those flavors just really heighten each other, you know, and it works so beautifully. I I really love it. Yeah, Me too. Even though it's got dead kids in it, which is always a problem for me. So Elisa,
0: what's your favorite page? Oh, my favorite page. I I think, you know, going back to that, that page in the library where, you know, Roland's reading The Scarlet Pimpernel and we see those ghostly faces pressed up against the window panes. And then as Roland is reflecting on the sense of history in the school, giving him a haunting feeling, we see that the ghosts are now inside with him in the bed's near him but they're separated Mm -hmm. by a panel border so we've got this you know image of the room which is very long and it's separated so there's it's like the conceit of the panel border shows that Mm -hmm. oh the the ghosts are inside but they're still a little separate from him and yet Mm -hmm. we get that foreboding because we know they're drawing closer Right, and even when you're
1: alone, you're not. You're alone. not alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I love. For me, I think it's the final page um, when they're walking away together into the sunlight, and Payne throws his cap up, and it ends up on that gate like a head on a spike. Um, I love it. It's so incredibly powerful. And while we have, I mean, in the foreground is this cap on the you know spiky gate head on a pike. It is very, you know, kind of reminiscent of the head on the pike, which is a horrifying image, right? Yet, you know, combined with this very happy, you know, two friends hand in hand walking into the sunlight It is a bright and beautiful and hopeful day. And again, those flavors just elevate each other. I just think that visually that works so beautifully. And I absolutely love it. Uh, What's your favorite part of the story?
0: Oh, you know, I think it's got to be when Roland, newly dead, just refuses to leave his one true friend. I don't think we've ever seen anyone else Mm -hmm. say no to death. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's just it's really wonderful. I love, again, like my favorite part and my favorite page happen to be the same this week because it's when they leave. They leave together, you know, and they're off to have this. And, you know, the last thing is let's see what life has in store for us or something like that. Right. You know, which I think is is really interesting commentary on uh, the life that continues even after death, because life is just time moving forward. And where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You know, Um, so I I love that. I think it's great.
0: And I'm never going back to my (laughs) old school. (laughs) If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Contact the law firm of, no, sorry, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us
1: on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stefania. And this week's special message for our power producers. If you get bored, come up to the sand. I'll make you a cup
0: of tea and we can have a bit of a natter. To find out how you, too, can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com chipperish. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or, Manson, put that away! Just because I'm not looking doesn't mean that I can't see you. <laughs> this episode of Endless
1: was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you, live boy, clean yourself up. We'll be back next time with Season of Miss Chapter 5, Issue 26 of the Sandman series, and the very first issue officially assistant edited by someone we all know very well. Until then, even when you're alone,
0: you're you're not
1: alone. alone. (laughs)